Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a nefarious part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is John Grisham Buff Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is the inventor of the ramen fork, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from the belly of a great whale, Bill Spruill. Hey. Thanks for joining us. All right. First up, our favorite, favorite segment, because I always win from now on. Lies, damn lies, and linguistics with our own John Grisham Buff, Trey Jones. Take it away, Trey. You guys know the drill. We've got three language-related items. Two of them are true. David, pay attention. Two of them are true. This time I am. One is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your guesses, we'll discuss. All right, item number one. Yupik is a language spoken on both sides of the Bering Strait, which separates Siberia from Alaska. Even though Russian is the official language on the Siberian side, and English is the official language on the Alaskan side, Siberian Yupik has more loanwords from English, while Alaskan Yupik has more loanwords from Russian. Number two. Ilunga is a Bantu word that is considered to be one of the most difficult in the world to translate. It means a person who is ready to forgive any abuse for the first time, to tolerate it a second time, but never a third time. Number three. In 1981, the president of Mozambique promoted the use of Portuguese loanwords in other languages with the goal of eventually encouraging everyone to use Portuguese. All right, who wants to go first? That sounds like David. Go. No, no, no. Bill goes first this time. I follow you, Bill. Oh, ye who I'm tied with. Go, Bill. As far as the Yupik is concerned, that sounds reasonable to me, frankly. I mean, most language groups have a healthy tendency to ignore borrowing patterns that everyone around them expects them to have because, frankly, what they borrow is their business. Number two sounds false to me because you're telling me it's like, here's the most difficult in the world word to translate, and then you tell me exactly what it means. <laughs> so I don't think it's that hard to translate, frankly. <laughs> Number three sounds reasonable because I'm pretty much willing to believe that any elected leader of a country is able to do ridiculous things about language policy. I mean, that's one of the things they do. So I'm going to say the false one is number two. Okay. Uh, I would like to clarify that for the purposes of translation, I think the idea is supposed to be to translate something concisely and not have to, you know, spell out an entire sentence. There's no corresponding concept. Theoretically, you could describe almost anything with a dictionary-like entry, but you can't really do that, say, if you were translating a story, right? And how do you know that's different from translation anyway? I think we better have a discussion of translation someday on this show. (laughs) Or at least something that could be termed translation. I I don't see the point. I just read everything in English. (laughs) Anyway, David, are you going to jump in and disagree with Bill, or shall I go next? Oh, no, absolutely I'm going to disagree with Bill. I'm going to tell you that number two is true. Now, the only thing that's getting me about these three facts is that Trey is going to change something. Like, for example, that it uh, it wasn't the leader of Mozambique. It was the leader of Mali, or that it's not Ilunga, it was Ilungo. Here's what I think. I am going with, oh, jeez. No, now I'm second-guessing myself. All right, one or three is, is going to be the false one. Two is true. I am going to go with, I'm going to go with one is false. I think that's just, I think that's just silly. There are probably a ton of English loan words in, in Alaskan Yupik. So two and three are true. Number one is false. Keith, you got something different? Yeah, I do. I'm going to agree with Bill, but for a different reason. I mean, one of the great things here is this: these are all about loan words, right? And if we've learned anything from the history of English, it's that really anything is possible in terms of what can be borrowed or what can be loaned. 
Yeah, so that makes this challenging. But number one, uh, the UPIC one, this is true. I learned about this in the book Team of Rivals. This was an official policy of detente instituted by that guy Seward when he purchased Alaska from Russia for 1495 or whatever it was. This was an official policy to uh, try to promote cross-oceanic understanding. So that one is true. Uh, And the third one, I agree with Bill. This loan word policy sounds just like the sort of thing a politician would dream up. And undoubtedly, there was a program with a budget that ran over 10% of the country's GDP. So that one has a real ring of truth to it, too. Number two, I agree with Bill. This one is false, but for a different reason. This is a Bantu word, we're told, but Bantu is the name of a language family, not a specific language. So this claim is nonsensical and therefore false. So the good news is David was wrong. (laughs) Yay! But go ahead. The Um, bad news is we were all wrong. No, no, no. Definitely the president of Mozambique did encourage people to use Portuguese loan words to help them learn Portuguese. Oh, Uh, and what was the budget? I don't know. I don't know what the budget was. The program was called Enriquecer a Lingua, to enrich the language. And I guess it was just Portuguese is a better language for commerce outside of the country and so on. So uh, that was true. This, the situation with Yupik and the Bering Strait is true. It apparently has to do not with anything that Seward had anything to do with. Thank you for that impromptu history lesson that you made up, Keith. Um, uh, you haven't read the book, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> My source says Russians just had more contact on the Alaskan side and the English speakers had more contact on the Siberian side, having to do with the Russians preferred to come in ships and the English speakers came over land or vice versa or something anyway. So it was just a, an accident of geography. Very convincing. Ilunga. That's a real word. I've heard of this one before. See, I thought that this one would trick up David because he reads stuff on the internet and then he believes it and there's his mistake. This was widely reported a few years ago in the media as true. There were these lists of the the most difficult word to translate and it had this in it. And uh, it turns out that no one seems to be able to find a source for the story. It doesn't appear to be true. Apparently, Ilunga is a common name in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but no one has ever heard it to mean anything like this, and there's no other word that means something like someone who forgives something once, twice, but not thrice. It's just one of those things that came out of the ether on the internet and is not true. Oh, my goodness. Is it the Yupik word for snow? (laughs) I think there are about 100 of them. 50 in Russian and 50 in English. You're you're a real punk, Trey Jones. I'm going to get you for this. Just you wait. Now listen, as a conlinger, I have certain powers. And one of these powers (laughs) is that once a year, I can basically will into existence a single word in any language. Most of the time, my words go to uh, languages like Hawaiian or Tongan. But I will insert a word into perhaps Swahili. Perhaps. I don't know. But it will mean this. And then, then I will have you go back and reverse this injustice that you have done to me. Revisionist? The internet is more correct than I think you are. I'll just say that. (laughs) Furthermore, I have no evidence that you actually exist. You may very well be a figment of the internet. (laughs) Well, anyway, what are the standings at now? Oh, so the score now is Bill's in the lead with seven. David, you have six, and Keith is starting to catch up a little with four. Oh, I'm going to get you next time. Watch your tail, Bill. Notice that Trey has zero at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you ever want to do one, you, 
the three of us can <laughs> the three of us collectively can make one up and then it will just be you competing what do you think i would say that every time that at least two of you got it wrong i get a point so i have one two that's, three four yeah, points that's a good way to do it well, that's, you have not, four, that's, that's a good way bad. to keep yeah. score Trey. so you and i are tied okay yeah i like that sounds good all right next up some language news but first a word from our sponsor has this ever happened to you <laughs> how about that jennifer lopez that's the body I call Millions of Americans suffer from can't remember wordulitis, and the numbers are on the rise. Thanks, and it's been a pleasure talking to, uh, to, uh, geez, not, not me, not him, not her, not it, not, uh, The effects of can't remember wordulitis can be serious if not treated properly, even fatal. I want to go, uh, oh, what's the, what's the word you say when you want something to be one way I, uh, jeez, oh, I need to use it there, too. When you want to use a Thankfully, word, there's hope. The trained professionals at the Speculative Grammarian Center for Make Word Come Back to Brain Treatment has been treating Can't Remember Wordulitis for almost three days now. Our specialists can find your missing words and can even help with other diseases, such as I swear I know that guy's name is right on the tip of my tongue, Luenza. You know the guy, he wrote that book about a basketball player and a, and a rabbit. His uh, name is John... Uh, uh, Don't wait. Uh, yeah, Seek help yeah. now. Operators are standing by to answer your questions. And remember, you could be the next one not to remember the word for... for the... Uh, brother. Um, yeah, um... And we're back. Now for some language news. Evidence is now mounting that infants are incompetent louts. The CPH Post reports that some linguists have found that children learn Danish more slowly than any other language. Why, you may ask? The number of vowels, apparently. Danish has so many vowels that a 15-month-old Danish child will understand 66 fewer words than its Croatian counterpart. That's a big number. So I guess the thing we need to do now is decide which vowels to delete from the Danish language. Any opinions? Myself, I vote for... Uh. Oh, come on, David. This is ridiculous. Blame it on the vowels. Sure. Blame it on the children. They can't defend themselves. Let's be realistic, guys. Kids need input, and obviously Danish parents aren't talking enough. What are they doing instead? Probably wasting their time publishing linguistic research papers. <laughs> I think the answer to the conundrum here is actually in the article. It opens with, a 15-month-old Croatian child understands approximately 150 words, a Danish child, same age, only 84. It's not because Danish kids are dumb or because Croatian kids are geniuses. And then later on they say the new education minister is one of many people who are complaining about Danish kids are learning too little and too late in school. News headlines about the kids doing poorly on international student assessment. According to linguists, it takes Danish children with Danish parents until they are 9 or 10 to crack the code of the Danish language. I think maybe Danish kids are dumb. Oh. That would be on average, though. I don't want to offend any of our Danish listeners because they, by virtue of the fact that they're listening to us, are above average intelligence. Extremely above average. Yes. I think maybe in phonetics classes, we should encourage a trend of people, the, the people who can't really get it and can't produce all the vowels and everything, they should call them dumb as a Danish kid. <laughs> 
Uh, this is getting good. I'd actually like to take a look at that last quote, just so that we can kind of soak in some of, I think, the best science journalism we've ever seen on this program. So here's the quote that was from the linguist or other, who I'm sure has a name. But the difference between the Croatian child and the Danish child doesn't persist. Once the children have reached the third or fourth grade, the linguistic code has been cracked, and then other things have significance for whether the student learns well or not, she added. Basically the usual descriptivist uh, mumbo-jumbo. Then the author of the article helps to interpret this for us. In other words, according to the linguist, it takes Danish children with Danish parents until they are nine or ten years old, in the third or fourth grade, to crack the code of the Danish language. And alarm bells ring. Oh, it was just a wonderful, a wonderful and correct interpretation, I think, of those words. <laughs> <laughs> There are a couple of ways that we can deal with this problem. One is to exclude Danes from the international community at large, because obviously they're dragging our averages down. The other thing is to just quite simply ship Danish children to Croatia, because evidently they're doing pretty good. Now, I don't think you want to take the Danish children out, because that'll raise the average, and, and other children won't be above average anymore. Ah. The Danes are dragging the average down. That's good. It allows us to shop. Apparently the Croatians are pulling the average That's down. What we so got to do. Maybe right. that's where the problem lies. Right. No, that's a good point. All right. So now let's let's flip this the other way. We have to get rid of Croatian children. So where can we put them? Wait, wait. <laughs> Maybe we can put the. Okay. No, we just we just switch it. Okay. This is what'll happen. We're gonna take the Croatian children and move them to Denmark, and they'll be educated in Danish schools and raised by Danish parents. And then the Danish children will then be sent to Croatia. And so then the Croatian children will come down, and uh, the Danish children will go up a little bit. The average won't change, but wait a minute, have I just argued myself out of my point? How does math work? I think you're missing a fundamental point about the article, too, which was that it focused heavily on discrepancies between Danish spelling and Danish sounds, which uh. is particularly kind of interesting because the difference between the Danish and the Croatian children starts disappearing as soon as the Danish Danish children are exposed to their supposedly illogical spelling system, ah. right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's apparently only when the Danish children don't know that their spelling system is illogical that they have trouble. <laughs> All right. So all maybe, you need to do is teach them to being, spell earlier. Maybe they're being affected by this sort of subtle sense of malaise that, well, what I'm hearing makes sense. Yes, there's phonological reduction in it, just like there is in every language. But I just keep getting the feeling that somebody somewhere is spelling this more complicatedly than it sounds. <laughs> and that's interfering with how I perceive things. And, you know, there's a good way to test this. We need to find out how long it takes young children to learn vocabulary when their parents are speaking Irish Gaelic. <laughs> because Irish Gaelic has approximately 47 consonants for every actual cons uh, consonant letters for every actual consonant sound. It's basically the relationship of spelling to sound is dazzlingly unpredictable with that language. So I think we need to do this kind of research. We could also sort of see what's going on. Uh, we need to check on the semantics of the words the children know, because since children are attracted to interesting phenomena, 
it could just be that Danish parents talk about boring things mm. more than Croatians do. <laughs> you know, if they're talking about the weather in Denmark, it's usually not that exciting, right? So they should be talking about extreme sports. And if they're talking about food, I, I mean, parents frequently are trying to get the kids to eat. And if they're talking about food and we're talking about Denmark, I wouldn't learn those words either. <laughs> So we should be encouraging Danish children to eat more McDonald's. You know, the sort of key process in Danish cooking boils down to boiling things down, basically. it's Ugh. You soak it for an hour, you boil it for an hour. There you go. Wow, that does sound awful. Man, and they're so close to the Netherlands. And Croatian food can be really interesting. So, hey, You guys are talking about moving children back and forth. You know, there's some international treaty that prohibits that, but there's nothing against moving languages from place to place. So I think if you would just switch the Danish and the Croatian languages, leave the speakers where they are, you might achieve the result you're looking for a little less um, illegally. Okay. I like that idea, but I think we should take it a step further. We should just raise the average, the linguistic equivalent of moving all the children to Lake Wobegon, where they can all be above average. Todos tenemos que aprender español ahorita. In Spanish, there are only five vowels. There's a little bit of variation. Learning to spell is something you do on a Thursday afternoon. The system is completely logical and really simple. A few little exceptions, you know, so it doesn't look like a conlang, which would be embarrassing. I think we should just teach them all Spanish. And then they could all be above average. This sounds perfect. And hey, after a little while of eating mole and nopales, I would really be excited to talk about their food, too. That's right. This is a great idea. All right. Well, I think that's another problem that basically language made difficult has solved. Still, though, if you see a Danish vowel lurking around your grocery store parking lot or rifling through your garbage, don't ask questions. Shoot to kill. <laughs> Moving right along to competent infants. Baby apes may hold the key to understanding the origins of human language. Katja Liebal and other linguarians at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology have discovered that apes flail their arms at each other and that this means something, apparently. To them, that is. To us, it means that spoken language as we know it descended directly from one ape waving at another ape. This communicative system, known as Proto-Ape Wave, is the mother language for all languages on the planet. So, problem solved. Linguistics is finished. Correct or simply not incorrect? <laughs> I don't think it's right. I'm not sure what you said is even wrong. <laughs> You did get into the spirit of the article by uh, extrapolating wildly without too much evidence. <laughs> really any evidence at all. This whole thing seems like an evolutionary psychology just-so story. You know, grunt and point is as likely as any other hypothesis for language, uh, the origin of language. We're never really going to know. It'd be more interesting to compare similarities across primate species and get rid of some of these silly notions about how human language is unique or very unique. You know, instead put it on a spectrum of animal communication. Hmm. It's a good thing these people are linguists and not physical anthropologists or something, or they'd say, you know, the fact that apes use sticks to get ants out of anthills provides strong evidence for the hypothesis that our ability to sword fight began with stick fighting rather than actual swords oh. or some crazy thing like that. You raise a good point. No, no, that's the <laughs> point. It's a bad point. <laughs> Boy. I thought it meant that words are actually caused by ants. Oh. No, I think words are caused by sticks. Oh, no, no, no. It's that ants are the birthplace of anthropology. See what uh, I did there? Right. I think part of my brain just died. 
<laughs> Alas, yes. <laughs> oh, man. So actually, one thing I did find interesting, this was in the last third of the article where they seemed to talk to somebody who knew what they were talking about who said, no, no, that stuff is true. Something I found interesting is that apes, apparently, all of them don't point. So I guess all human beings in different environments, they eventually figure pointing out. You know, the young infants, they pointed something and that means give me that or do something to that or make something that's at what I'm pointing at do something interesting or just, you know, look at how silly that man is. This guy suggests that the different ape communities don't all learn to point and which made me wonder what, what do they do instead or do they do something like they don't point with their finger or maybe they point with their elbows or, or their behinds or their or their knees or something. Could we find an entire community of apes that are pointing at things, say, by just thrusting in the general direction, you know, with the, with the pelvis. Well, I think it's kind of interesting that it, it didn't apparently occur to them to check more than seven cultural settings for humans to see if everyone points using the index finger. Because there are a number of communities where pointing with the index finger is considered rude and one points with one's nose. Chins. Oh. Now, oh. Lips. Yeah. Yeah, chins. Yeah, they point with chins in India. Things. Yep. I've heard about the lips too. Now, yeah. now, I don't know if that means that children do sort of naturally point with their index fingers and then their parents teach them to stop. Hmm. It might still be a universal tendency to point with the index finger and then in some cultures that's rude so you develop some sort of compensatory mechanism. But it could also mean that humans don't always point with the index finger, right? And that would be a question worth settling first, I would think. Uh, that's actually interesting. When I was doing field work uh, with Moro from Sudan, the informant who's from Sudan pointed only with his middle finger, uh, which makes sense because it's usually the longest finger, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And then I discovered that I've now developed that habit. But not only that, what was also interesting, he didn't point directly at things that he was pointing at. He usually pointed down, like if he was at a table, he would point at the table in the direction that something was, but not at that thing. It's kind of similar to Disneyland, where they're taught to point with two fingers, because I guess that's less rude. Mm. The question here is, what's the underlying parameter that we're really interested in? You know, what we want to know about is the UG uh, <laughs> parameters that show up in these various bizarre ways right. around the world. Right. Uh, so a, a lip pointing is really probably just performance error for index finger pointing, I assume, right? You would think so. <laughs> no, no, it's a, a, um, Between their lips and their index finger. <laughs> There's probably an additional set of roles like, you know, gamma roles or something, and... When you block the mapping of a gamma roll that would normally be expressed by a finger pointing, it then becomes attracted to a different node, like the lips, that, that, you, that would do it. That makes sense. I like that. Leaving, of course, big point back at the index finger, but it's not actually filled by an actual, like, gesture. Well, I think that handles that question. We can move on. <laughs> Actually, one thing that I thought was slightly interesting is they said that each ape community developed a series of idiosyncratic gestures, and that apparently this was surprising. Uh, why should that be surprising? I mean, shouldn't that be what we expect? Well, I think it's it's the idea that human language is so special and that apes are only going to do things that are hardwired. So if you have that mindset, it is surprising. Uh, human language is special. It's so special that incompetent children can't possibly learn it on their own just from listening to it. <laughs> they have to have most of it in their head already. Uh, it's pretty darn special. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, if you're interested in doing field work on Proto Ape Wave, you should be able to find several native speakers at your local zoo. Let's take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back with more language made difficult. Language Made Difficult is not brought to you by the American Dialects Society, the British Association for Applied Linguistics, nor the International Clinical Phonetics and Linguistics Association. All right, we're back. As professional linguologists, it's our job to teach prescriptivists that they're wrong about everything. They say you can't end a sentence with a preposition. We say you should end every sentence with a preposition. They say you shouldn't say ain't. We sponsored an ain't day parade. That's just what we do. And yet, lurking at the back of our consciousness is a kind of nails on the chalkboard reaction to certain so-called errors that, by all rights, we should be in favor of because it's simply standard language variation. And yet, still, we have it in us to just say, that is wrong. So today we'd like to take some time to share some of these gut-level knee-jerk reactions with you in a segment our janitor calls Prescriptivist Confessions. Who would like to share? Well, I'll start by whining about the current use of the verb to utilize, Mm. which (laughs) apparently is what everyone's required to use in writing instead of just saying use. And I think I'm objecting to it simply because it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not not the existence of the verb itself, but the feeling that somehow you've said something more important because you typed more letters is just (laughs) wrong. I, although I feel guilty about saying that it's wrong, I don't feel too guilty because the people that, that sort of do this the most are typically people that have some power. They're like administrators. And those people should be told they're wrong as often as possible just to like help keep them in check. And so I guess that's what I put forward as the thing we might let ourselves chide people about for a week, even (laughs) though we know language change is normal. You know, though, your gut level reaction to this is sort of a good thing because one of the the nice things about these sort of visceral reactions to these things is it makes them very easy to identify. You don't have to go looking for them. It's not like a stylistic analysis. You're like, oh, utilize, uh, and it makes you cringe. This is good for a couple of reasons. One is it will help you identify up-and-coming potential future administrators. Oh. So, so you know, when the junior faculty starts and, and the one who's using utilize the most is the one who's most likely to become the chair of the department in 10 or 15 years, you should get on that person's good side now. Mm. So you're proposing a, a different way to do tenure and promotion committees, aren't you? No, no, I'm just saying we should use this uh, sociolinguistics of the situation to your advantage. <laughs> and the fact that you don't have to, it doesn't require any effort to, to, to do the detection. Uh, personally, I just hear utilize, and I think, wow, it's kind of an antiquated expression. I mean, uh, at least most of us young people, we pretty much use usinate. You guys don't use that? No. I mean, usinate that or utilize that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought uh, it was usually. <laughs> uh, usination. The, the one that bugs me when other people say it is good, as in I feel good when we've been taught, internalized, that it must be, I feel well. But the thing that's striking to me about it is that I always notice it when someone else violates this egregiously, but 
for myself, it's okay to say I feel good. It's just that other people shouldn't do it. That's wrong. <laughs> it's because you're gooder than other people, Keith. Apparently, I'm weller than other people or something. <laughs> but the thing is, in that situation, I believe good is actually correct, if I may put that in quotes. <laughs> so, um, for example, you could also say I feel blue. You don't say I feel bluely. But if you wanted to say how well you felt blue, you could say I feel blue well. I feel blue much better than she feels blue. Know what I mean? You've raised feeling blue it's to an, an art form. It's an adjective standard. As a subject compliment rather than being an adverb. Uh, there you go, according to traditional grammar. Oh, uh, good said. Good said. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, the the one that actually bugs me, and I know it shouldn't, and I really think that 50 years down the line, we're probably going to u- lose the term entirely. What bugs me is when people use less when they ought to use fewer. Yeah. Oh, God, it just it just kills me. I found a, a one up here where it's like, I just knew when I was writing this, if somebody else had written it, they would have said less. Uh <sighs> You know, I, I agree with you, and it's it's kind of crazy because, like, in Spanish, there's no distinction like that, right? And it doesn't bother me in Spanish. No, but it, it, it's, <laughs> but it's <laughs> in English. Yeah, no, it's just terrible in English. Okay, yeah. Here, so no. for, here's here's actually the example. This was this is from my introduction to Danish. So, and I will do this incorrectly so that we can hear how awful it sounds. Danish has so many vowels that a 15 month old Danish child will understand 66 less words than its Croatian counterpart. Isn't that awful? No, you it's know, terrible. It's terrible. Ugh. It is annoying, but there are some people who say, so like 15 items or less at the grocery store, people say it should be 15 items or fewer. Mm. I've actually seen some of the prescriptivist guidelines that say when you're using specific numbers, it's okay to use less instead of fewer. One of the things I love about linguistics is the way it damages your brain. Mm. And you have this like permanent cycle that's constantly analyzing what other people say. And if you're not Keith, analyzing what you say. (laughs) And... When somebody makes you aware of something, you suddenly hear it everywhere. And so this less fewer thing, people who do that, they are making a a transition. They also use amount instead of number. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So they would say the amount of people at the party instead of the number of people at the party. Oh, that's weird. But it makes sense with the less and fewer, right? If you stop making that distinction between mass and count nouns. Oh, God. So That use of amount has become almost completely standard among young people who write papers I have to grade. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Oh. I say this as someone who is simultaneously understanding that it's a normal language change. It's that the count versus mass distinction is disappearing from quantifiers in English. Mm. At the same time, I also know that a bunch of people reading this are going to have the same reaction I'm having to it, which is, why are you focusing on how much those people weigh who were at the party? I mean, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Yeah, there were 50 people there, but it wasn't a large amount because they were all really skinny. You know, that kind of thing. Um, So... So it's a conundrum. Oh, brother. So this error that started with less viewers kind of, uh, it's escaped from its cage and it's starting to infect other areas of language. Pretty soon, before you know it, we're going to lose Ed as a phoneme in English. And it's going to be because of this. Ah, brother. Well, I think it all started with the loss of the dual pronouns in Old English. 
<laughs> right. I, I mean, people stop being careful to mark dual in their pronoun system, and then everything just goes to hell. <laughs> all language change is ultimately driven by laziness because uh, we're all lazy. Or um, a desire to hear. Uh, I was. I just figured it was all driven by Danes. You know, <laughs> Uh, well, the one that gets me is um, rising intonation in, in declarative sentences, and so <laughs> like every- you just did. <laughs> you totally and just did it. Everything you say sounds like a question, and it, it's really annoying. And don't do it anymore. <laughs> oh my god, I so know what you mean. <laughs> That was my native accent. I can break from it to speak with you gentlemen. But that's how I speak usually. <laughs> I can turn it off and on if I wish. So you're admitting that your native dialect is defective? Uh, no, it's, it's going to take over the airwaves. I think it already has. If it can change the abbreviation of my county from OC to the OC, then trust me, we're going to take over your language varieties. So y'all just better deal with that. You misinterpreted that, okay? The use of the definite article for Orange County was everyone else's attempt to make the point that there should only be one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, look, if there is going to be one of them, it's going to be ours and not Florida's. That Florida, Orange County. Isn't it um, a count from Spain? Spanish, it should be Los OC or something like that. Uh, well, there's only one of us. There's only one Orange County. <laughs> Wait, let's see that de las naranjas. Um, okay, you've convinced us anyway, Trey. Trey, what is wrong with the rising intonation thing? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. We're we're here to be supportive, guys. We're here to be supportive. Tell us, tell us, Trey, share with us. <laughs> well, you know, like everyone else who complains about it, it just, everything sounds like a question. It actually, I have known a couple of people who have suffered at the hands of their merciless peers, who included me, because they didn't sound like they could say anything confidently, right? They never, ever made a statement. Everything was a question. Uh, you never knew if they were asking or telling, and it's just kind of annoying. <laughs> you know, actually, one of the ways that I found that it works, at least in discourse, especially when telling a story or, or, or relating something, is that everything ends with rising intonation until you make your point. Then it falls. See? So it's like the rising intonation is there simply to tell you, not done yet, still going, still getting bigger. Uh, so, like, uh, this one time I was talking to this guy, and it's like he was totally not paying attention to me. See how that worked? I thought for sure you're gonna say this one time at band camp. <laughs> it's like, this is this is a PG rated show. Don't oh, yeah. they they all just copying us. <laughs> anyway, getting back to this the OC thing, mm. that reminds me of another one that really gets me, which is since I live in Washington DC, at least governmental sort of beltway insiders talk about like the Environmental Protection Agency, they mm. call it EPA. They don't call it the EPA. Oh, that's weird. And they do that for other three-letter agencies. And they'll say, you know, EPA released new guidelines this week. And I find so that... So were you upset because people don't work for the NASA? <laughs> wow. Hmm. Trey, Trey, Trey. Bureaucrats have a budget, you know, an annual limit on the number of definite articles they can expend, and they got to conserve. Actually, wasn't that a legitimate concern for uh, linguistic theories back in the 70s? That is, if you could express a rule with fewer ink. Or, I'm sorry, now I'm getting crazy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> with, with less ink on the paper, it was somehow more explanatorily adequate or, or better. It was or referred to as elegant. It was more elegant. Oh, oh there we go. So it's, uh, it's the saying EPA is more elegant than the EPA. That's how it goes down in the D.C. So, <laughs> as I believe it was Einstein said, things should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. <laughs> I like that. Well, as a mathematician, I'm glad Einstein wasn't a linguist. <laughs> I can tell you that elegance is a wonderful thing in your equations and your computational models and everything, but you can push it too far. <laughs> well, now that we've shared our innermost thoughts, we can each of us say six Halle Chomskys and get back to doing what we do best, punching prescriptivism in the pelvis. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen, for sharing. I think this has been a productive session. Very cathartic. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we review Kevin Bickelson's introductory morphology midterm. 17 out of 60. Yikes. That is an F. Thanks for listening. We're finished. You have to admit that at an emotional level, people say things are just friggin' wrong. That's all right. Danish isn't a real language anyway. I'm going to teach you how to BS read an article. Don't they teach that in school? They must teach that nowadays, right? No, no. They, they... No, because it actually requires reading. Nothing can be more hopeless than grading. Whoa, whoa is us. We get to see just some fantastically horrible science right doing this podcast. Oh, God, I love it. I screwed that Take up. Take two. I will stop geeking out here. We need to record that sound for, like, our busy office soundtrack or something. <laughs> oh, busy office soundtrack. That's a good name for an album. Oh, I withdraw the comment. Never mind. Kind of a smorgasbord of bad science writing. <laughs> because even the consonants are vowels. Yeah. Ooh, what is this crazy language? Just jump in and let's see how it goes. I, I want to be a conlanger. The horses of English do not gallop in this sequence, you know, or something. <laughs> if you know what you're doing, yeah, you can choose SVO, that's fine. Linguists are just wannabe conlangers. That comes from me. You did not tell him that Lithuanian was a conlang, did you? Not yet. Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, it's apparently a real place. I thought it was just on The Simpsons. But still, if you can work shag carpeting into it somehow, it would be even more fascinatingly offensive. You know, I think my universal grammar parameter is set to minus sports. So what is the freaking deal with roller derby? I can't believe that that sport is allowed to exist. Like, what the hell? Who sat down and thought, you know, this is going to be a good idea. Oh, you know what? Let's just make it women. Frat boys. The frat boys. (laughs) The same ones who go out and scream, cat fight, whenever girls start fighting. Okay. Right? And they said, hey, let's organize it into a sport and put them on wheels. Oh, Google, I see. Okay. To further understand us humans? Okay. Yes, exactly. Slam ball is a real sport. They need more linguistic team names like the Rhodicism. <laughs>